The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, quit praying to that porcelain god and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 310 with guest Simon Peyton Jones, recorded live Tuesday, January 15th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Talaret, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who says, all work and no play, gets Carla Lamborghini, Carl Franklin. Yes, sir. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin and Mr. Campbell in Lithuania today. Here I am, freezing in Lithuania. He's not really in Lithuania. I'm not yet. I mean, he is while you're listening to this, but I, I, never mind. It's never mind. It's that whole time shift thing again. Yeah. Almost over my cold. Yeah, it's, it's starting to sound better. Yeah, but it's really, really taking a lot out of me. Yeah, tough week. Tough week. Let's get into Better Know Framework then. Got a class for me, Mr. Franklin? Well, not so much a class as a feature of .NET 3.5, and I'll tell you how it's implemented in both VB9 and, and C Sharp 3. Okay. I'm um, talking about inferred types. Ah. Yeah. Uh, in VB9, you have this uh, option infer on, and what you can do with it is simply dim x equals new class name. Right. You don't need anything more than that, because you've already told the compiler what you're creating. You don't need to tell that x is one of those, because that's what you're assigning it to. Right? Right. So uh, it just makes a lot of sense. It's great that we can turn it off in VB. In C-sharp, not so lucky, but they created a new keyword, uh, the var keyword. So you just say var instead of the data type, var blah, 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 equals, and then your, your class, uh, new, and then your class. So, so there you have it. Inferred types is not a variant. We're not talking about variants at all. No. It, the compiler does the same thing. The IL is exactly the same as if you did explicitly define what your variable type is. So uh, so there you have it, inferred types. Wow, no classes this week. That's two in a row now you've done that were more language features than yeah. classes. Well, you know, 
you find these little nuggets, you like to uh, drop them in. Ah, okay. So what do you got for us? I got another email, which is also feedback from show 308 uh, with Aaron, Aaron Sconner. We obviously yeah. had too much fun on that show. We keep getting emails about it. Well, you guys seem to have fun. I I was a sort of a spectator. <laughs> yeah. You were guys and I like, were uh, we're definitely having a good time. We you were guys are like out two day. men with one brain. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I was like, yeah, wait a minute, yeah, but what, 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 yeah, but wait, wait. Yep, that's what it was like. <clears throat> we'll leave we'll leave the coherency of the show down to good editing because it was a good speaking. <laughs> it was a great show. I enjoyed it. But recall that you brought up. That fake news story revealing that the C language was a hoax. Right. And one of our listeners, Josh Goldie, found a link to it. Uh-huh. And it's shrinksterized at shrinkster.com slash T-Z-T, Tango Zulu Tango. Awesome. You want to read a little of it? Yeah. I, let me g- give you a piece of this. You got to go and read it because some of it just isn't going to communicate over the radio. You have to see it to make it worthwhile. And okay. it's from the Computer World magazine, which long gone, April 1st, 1997. Okay. In an announcement that has stunned the computer industry, <clears throat> Ken Thompson, Dennis Ritchie, and Brian Kernigan admitted that the Unix operating system and the C programming language created by them is an elaborate April Fool's Day prank kept alive for over 20 years. Speaking at a recent <laughs> Unix World Software Development Forum, Thompson revealed the following. In 1969, AT&T had just terminated their work with the GE Honeywell AT&T Multix project. Brian and I had just started working with an early release of Pascal from Professor Nicholas Wirth's ETH labs in Switzerland, and we were impressed with its elegant simplicity and power. Dennis had just finished reading Board of the Rings, a hilarious National Lampoon parody of the great Tolkien Lord of the Rings trilogy. As a lark, we decided to do parodies of the Multix environment and Pascal. Dennis and I were responsible for the operating environment. We looked at Multics and designed a new system to be as complex and as cryptic as possible to maximize casual users' frustration levels, calling it Unix as a parody of Multics, as well as more other risque illusions. (laughs) Then Dennis and Brian worked on a truly warped version of Pascal called A. (laughs) When we found others that were actually trying to create real programs with A, we quickly added additional cryptic features and evolved into B, BCPL, and finally C. We stopped and we got a clean compile on the following syntax. And there, that's the line I alluded to. The line of code is absolutely hysterical. It has to be read. Speaking it out won't work. So go to shrinkster.com slash TZT and take a look. Speaking of shrinkster.com, just as you were reading that, we got an email from our friend Rob Windsor. Yes. Uh, Object Sharp up in Toronto. And he asked for a plug for an event that he his company, Object Sharp, is putting together uh, at shrinkster.com slash TZV. And uh, they're calling it Visual Studio 2008 at the movies, February 7th, 2008. An evaluation of what's hot and what's not in Visual Studio 2008 from the pros who really know. Nice. Barry Gervin, Dave Lloyd, Bruce Johnson, Rob Windsor, and Rob Burke. So there you go. TZV. Check it out. And with that, Richard, let's bring on our guest today, Simon Peyton Jones. Uh, He is a researcher at Microsoft Research in Cambridge, England. He's also an honorary professor of the Computing Science Department at Glasgow University. Simon is interested in the design, implementation, and application of lazy functional languages, and we'll find out what that is in a minute, spending most of his time on the design and implementation of the language Haskell. Much of his work is focused around the Glasgow Haskell compiler and its ramifications. And without any further ado, Mr. Simon Peyton-Jones, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 
Glasgow yes. Haskell. Boy, that's just a minefield. Yeah, that's uh, you. By the way, uh, as we were saying just before we started recording, you were asked for by name uh, by a fan who said, "We can't believe you've had all this, uh, you know, stuff about functional programming, and you haven't. Nobody's nobody's talked to you yet." So. Uh, we're really, really honored to have you here. <laughs> well, that was nice of them to say that. Well, let's start with lazy functional languages. This is a new one on me, and I know Richard probably knows what this is, but but uh, tell us what that means. So normally if you call a uh, procedure or a function and you pass it some arguments, you're going to evaluate the arguments before you pass them. That's right? compilation. Um, well, even an interpreter might do this. So okay. if I say, if I say, if I got a procedure like of f, and I say f of uh, three plus four, I'm going to pass seven, right? Right. Um, and if I said f of the square root of some very big complicated number or the smallest prime number that's uh, bigger than two to the eleven, then you'll still compute that before you call the function. Okay. Right. But what if the function just said f of x is return three? Then all your work of computing that that argument was wasted. Okay. If your function has a an absolute value, return value, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is a pretty silly function, right? So, okay. I'm taking an extreme case. This isn't why we do lazy functional programming, okay, okay. but I'm, I'm just trying to give you the idea of what it is. Sure. Right? So, but you could, laziness could work um, in the expression part of any language, you know, even an imperative one. So, mm. uh, so in principle, you could see that instead of computing the value of each argument yeah. and passing those values... You could instead build a little recipe or suspension um, that says, if later the function needs the value of this argument, then go ahead and compute it. I see. Sort of just-in-time computing. There you go. Yeah. Hmm. So it's, uh, so la laziness is just-in-time is just computing. That's a good way to put it. And it, I guess this matters a lot in mathematical uh, uh, formulas. Is this the idea? Actually, it matters even in very simple ones. So think of if-then-else. Right, so if I, supposing I wanted to write if-then-else as a function of three arguments, right, a Boolean, and then the then value and the else value. So I guess this isn't if-then-else in, in C. This is more like the question mark colon operator in C. Okay. Right. So if I wanted to write that as a normal procedure, I said, well, uh, so if-then-else, open brackets, uh, x bigger than zero, um, and then, uh, you know, then part and else part. Well, then in a call-by-value language, that's, that's nor, you know, norm, with normal programming, you'd um, compute both the then and the else uh, arguments. You'd pass them to the if-then-else function, which would say, which would return one of them if the this first argument was true and the other if it was false, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so this is just a long way around of saying, if you, but, that you, I mean, you wouldn't want to do this, right? Because the whole point about if-then-else is only one bit gets computed. Yeah, it's either the then part or the else part. Right, mm. right. You don't want to do them both. <laughs> and I, I remember I've run into languages where they d always computed both no matter what, and sometimes you'd have scenarios where the one of them couldn't be computed because there was like a value missing. It was a null. And the the if part was the part that said, make sure this, if this is null, then don't compute this, do the other thing. But because the language would always compute both, it would keep failing. Right, right. Ah, okay. So, I mean, this is just as somewhat, it's program efficiency. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because you're only computing what you absolutely need to compute. Right. So that's that's the just-in-time computing. It's compute only what you need. So yeah. so where does it bite you? So the the reason uh, just to finish the if and else example, the okay. reason I wanted to mention it is okay. because it's um uh it gives you a more powerful abstraction mechanism. So in most languages, if then else is built in precisely because you can't make it out of what you what you have, right? Hmm. Right. Um, so uh, in a functional, in a lazy, in a, well, in a lazy language, it's easier to build new um, to build new constructs out of old ones because you can pass arguments unevaluated, which means that you can be uh, you can do um, uh, you can pass pieces that you really do not want evaluated. It might be catastrophe. It's if mm. x equals naught, then return one. Otherwise, three over x would crash if x was zero. <laughs> right. And you computed three over x. Um, so, uh, so this lazy evaluation thing can help you to build um, more modular programs that are going to be tolerant of only of those kinds of conditions. Nulls and zeros, I guess, are the ones that are going to bite you the most. So there's so there's that, and there's a, there's another important way in which laziness can help you build um, modular programs. Imagine a um, a program that uh, let's say um, builds a tree. Right, and it uh, maybe it's the tree that's the, the search space for some algorithm. It's the tree of all possible chess moves. Okay. Right, um, and uh, so it's pretty big, right? Yeah. If you really compute the tree of all possible moves, that's right. right? <laughs> but so, if, but if you imagine you imagine building that tree and you return it to your caller, and now there's a guy who explores the tree. Well, if the tree doesn't actually isn't actually evaluated in its full glory, instead, each little branch of the tree is just another of these little suspensions if sure. anybody looks at it it'll compute just one more level right i get it right? i get so, it uh, so it allows you to split an algorithm into two the bit that generates the stuff and returns this uh data structure and the bit that explores it wow now that that's uh, an example where you can see the power of it yeah because i was just thinking like the in if then else i uh, concept of only compute what you need. Mm -hmm. I know I've seen that before, before, and I think it was called short circuit evaluation. Right. So and yes, even, even so, C has that. They say right. uh, uh, if you write um, A and or is it ampersand ampersand B? Yeah, the double yeah. ampersands with the That's short right. circuit operators. I'm thinking of right. C plus plus. There was there was double ampersand operators that they said just compute the one if it right. if it's true. We had that in in Visual Basic at some point too. I think. It was a special operator, but right, and uh, special, right, right, and it's also, built in, right, and also, yeah, and, and it's special. It's built into the language. The compiler knows about it. Right, and yeah. you can't, you can't make operators like that yourself. No, you, yeah, there's no way to make that yourself. That's a fairly specific. Don't compute this. That's one right. thing you really can't normally express in a language. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, uh, so laziness is a way to. Um, uh, to, as it were, give that power to the programmer to define the, their own operators, which have that kind of behavior. Right. Yeah. The, I see laziness as a bigger concept than short circuit, where we're it's applying to more than just if then else scenarios, but getting into this whole idea of I think a tree example is phenomenal for that. That it's it's such a complicated process that anything we can do to leave out that we know we don't need. Uh, is going to make a big difference. And the important thing is that it allows you to separate in your mind. So I guess one thing we should say is that uh, we've spoken in terms of kind of integer arguments, so it's either evaluated or it's not. Right. But a tree or a list could be partly evaluated. You know, some parts are evaluated and other parts are still these suspensions, which we often call funks, which are lying there just waiting for somebody to poke on them, but at the moment they're nice and small. 
thunks. Mm-hmm. Thunks. I, as soon as I hear <laughs> thunk, I think about uh, th- that was a 16-bit to 32-bit conversion. Yeah. Or back or the other way. Yeah. Maybe it's a different term entirely. Uh, may not be. Right. So, <clears throat> so if it was done, as it were, on demand, then... Uh... Well, that was the thing, is they were slow. Ah. Uh-huh. Right. right. In, the in, thunking in, in the migration to the 32-bit operating system, we had all this old 16-bit code that just wasn't going to go away, uh-huh. and thunking to the 32-bit layer was just costly. And the thing is, it was dynamic. It, it happened, yeah, dynamically. There was the thunking layer. <laughs> right. Oh, well. So I, I suspected the, the origin of the term may be similar, but uh, you, you, sometimes functional programmers, you'll hear them say thunk and sometimes suspension. Um, and it just means this little unevaluated recipe of code pointer and free variables, which when you poke on it will turn into a value. Hmm. Uh, sometimes also called force and delay. The delay builds the thunk and the force, well, forces it. Right. To actually do the computation. To evaluate, yeah. Once, yeah. once is needed. So the key thing is modularity, right? So that you can, in our tree example, the, pro- the bit of program that builds the tree doesn't have to carry around variables that say which bits of the tree are going to be later evaluated. No, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Right? So the, the producer and the consumer become completely separated, and this mm-hmm. is really important in practice. I keep thinking that this has got to be really powerful for multiple simultaneous processing, for actually parallelizing the work. Yes, the important thing about for parallelizing is purity rather than laziness. Okay. Um, and in fact, that's, I think, so I think Haskell, Haskell is a lazy language. And in fact, that was the initial rallying cry that uh, brought the group of people together who worked on Haskell. Uh, the rallying to, cry, be lazy? Uh, that's right, be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Go out and be lazy. We, we've talked about purity before in functional language, um, but, you know, frankly, it was a while ago, so maybe it would be a good time to revisit that term. Yeah, so, so purity, is, uh, a, 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 purity is a bigger thing for, um, than, than laziness, I think. So la- laziness is a I, – I really like laziness, but um, Who purity is more important. So purity says uh, that – if you call a function and you give it an argument that has a certain value and you get a result, and then you call that same function again, giving it the same value, you'll get the same result. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now, now, think of what that means. That means that the function can't be doing any I.O. Because mm-hmm. if it was doing I.O., it could have consulted the state of the stock market mm. and could give you a different result. It can't have any hidden state because if it had a hidden state, then when you called it the next time, it might give you a different result. Yes. So it's a pure function that takes an input and delivers an output that depends only on the input. Right. Right? So totally, and the other term I've I've used quite a bit, and this is very database-related, is deterministic. Absolutely deterministic. That's right. Right. Um, But it's not just deterministic in ordering with everything else. It's also sort of with itself. You know, the, the same input gives you the same output. Every time. Every time. So is the yeah. goal to make uh, to to break down um, applications or even bigger functions into smaller, more pure functions? Well, so so why is purity good? And we have to say, you know, why is this supposed to be good? Well, um, in mainstream imperative languages, you often find functions that have no arguments and sometimes produce no results, and they're called only for their side effects, for the effect they have on the state of the system. So... Um, the whole point of calling many functions is to alter the state of the world. But the trouble with uh, – you can build really good programs that do that. Most programs are, and they, they kind of work. But it's, they're hard to reason about because uh, when you alter the state of the world, you have, to, um, uh, you have to know about what all the other guys who are looking at that state 
might want to know. In other words, what a function does isn't very apparent from its type. If it takes an int and produces an int, well, uh, you know for sure that it'll take an int and produce an int, but it might have some arbitrary side effects on the rest of the world. And the order and timing of those effects might be extremely important. Yes. So for parallelism, for example, can you call, if you're calling f and then g, it matters, well, it may matter that you call f and then g. Yeah, the order matters. It may matter. You, you just can't tell. It's very hard to tell from the outside. Right. And even if you look in the inside and you see, oh, F and G are both mutating something. Well, it would be okay if they're mutating different things. But I wonder if they are different. So we have to figure out, we have to do alias analysis to figure out they're, they're poking on these pointers. Could these pointers ever point to the same value? Wow. Mm. You remember back in the old days where we were told global variables were bad? Yeah. This is like... Now we get an idea of just how bad we're talking about. The whole thing about the relationship with F and G is altering some other value in the system that's not explicitly passed in or passed out. Right. And creates a dependency between those two functions so that order might matter or behavior, or behavior is altered if it's sequenced differently and so forth. Right. Right. And so the, the, and indeed, the whole imperative programming model is based on this idea. And it's a very simple and appealing model because it's so close to our machines. You know, do this and then do that is what computers do. And it's quite close to our, our kind of mental intuition about how machines might work. And it's been enormously successful, right? The imperative programming paradigm just dominates programming today. But it's so linear that it counted on the whole Moore's law thing of we need faster and faster processors to do more. And now that we've, I really think we've just hit the limit on how much faster we want to make a processor because the Im, the cost and impact of this, I'm a hardware guy, so of course it matters to me. The P4 line got to four gigahertz and at that point boiled everything it touched. <laughs> and now we've backed off, gone to slower processors, but more of them. Including my laptop. Yes, your laptop being a big role player in that. Yeah. It's only a laptop if you're wearing asbestos. <laughs> uh, well, boils we, everything it touches. Oh, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's just screaming. You know, so the P4, honestly, is a processor that failed. We've really, you know, the current generation of processors out there right now are P3 cored, but they've gone parallel. We all have multiple cores. And this concept of... Linear programming is just not effective anymore. We have to be able to parallelize. Right, right. So, in fact, if you look back at the last, uh, I don't know, it's almost since programming began, there's been these two streams going on at the same time. One is the um, mainstream imperative programming strand. And then along the side has been this kind of rather geeky, academic, purely functional programming strand. Yes. Which has, been, which has always sort of stuck to this idea of extreme purity. But it's been, for a long time, was pretty impractical, right? The compilers for it generated rather poor code. They weren't very fast, right? Because they had a bigger abstraction barrier to cross, right? The functional languages are very high-level languages. And so it took us a while to work out how to make compilers that could generate good code. Well, now, I right. remember when Visual Studio first came out, when, when .NET 1.0 hit the streets, and one of the selling points Microsoft had was all of the different languages that you could run inside Visual Studio. And Haskell was on that list. What, what, was there something, was there some kind of Haskell compiler at the time going on, even back then at Microsoft Research? Uh, oh, so we certainly, so the compiler that I built, which is the, the Glasgow Haskell compiler, GHC, mm-hmm. um, compiles to native code. And we've never made it compile to .NET, sadly. Um, it's not it's not really a problem with doing that in principle, but it's a considerable engineering um, exercise. Yeah. And uh, researchers don't 
get paid to do engineering all the time. Yeah, right. Uh, and and Haskell hasn't been hasn't perhaps until recently become uh, mainstream enough and widely enough used to um, for anybody to want to apply that engineering work. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't see it on the list, yeah, but I remember I mean, there was a I, list of 20 or so. Like, you know, most of the diversity of languages when .NET first came out were all of the old uh, object-oriented languages, and I keep thinking of stuff like Eiffel yeah. and Prolog right. and Smalltalk, which right. I mean, which ultimately you know had already gone away by 2000 because we didn't need that many object-oriented languages. Really, the first time I got a handle on the idea of a, of a functional language run, living in studio was F-sharp. Right, and indeed F sharp has has uh, addressed my problem. But I've been I was for for some while a bit sad at not having enough engineering work to put onto getting Haskell onto .NET. There's a, there's a number of contributory factors actually, but then Don wonderfully filled this niche with F sharp, which has the huge strength that it targets only .NET. So he could design the language around the platform. Yes. Which is extremely helpful, because a lot of the engineering difficulties with getting Haskell onto .NET were the fact that it also had to work on Linux and native Windows and everything else as well. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's a huge demand, because there's so much... In the end, .NET is still sitting on top of Windows, and that's an awful lot of infrastructure to count on that you'd have to replicate to go to a different platform. Right, right. And, and also F-sharp embodies to some extent .NET's type system as well, because .NET is more than uh, just a you know, machine code generation, just-in-time compiler kind of platform. Right. It also has a whole type system and, and huge collection of libraries yes. that, that you must interoperate with smoothly. Yeah, that's just a, and like I said, it's just a huge engineering exercise. It takes time to make sure all of that works. So um, I recently did a show with Venkat Subramaniam on functional programming in Erlang, Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how how uh, how much overlap there is between or what the differences are between Erlang and Haskell, but he chose Erlang as a great place to start um, people thinking about functional programming so that he could come in with F uh, sharp on a future show and show us what's possible. But what's the what are the differences there, Erlang and Haskell? Uh, so Erlang is a wonderful example of a very, very successful functional language that's been deployed on you know, hundreds of, of uh, applications that have to really work. You know, well, you did the show, you know, so you, you, right. you know about this, about <laughs> extremely high reliability telephone exchanges. Uh, so Erlang has a very specific mission. It was, it was initially designed for telecommunications kind of applications, oh. and that influences its whole architecture. So it's each Erlang thread. So it was designed for concurrency from the beginning. Hmm. But each Erlang thread is completely partitioned from every other Erlang thread. So even it has its own private heap and it does its own private garbage collection. When you send a message from one Erlang thread to another, the entire data structure that you pass as the, you know, in the message is serialized and, and sent to the other thread where it's deserialized into its heap. And so this gives you very good partitioning between threads. If a thread dies, it doesn't take any other threads down with it, but they live in, in separate little worlds. Yeah, it's, it's very in, inherently pure, but there's a great significant punishment in inter-thread communication. Right, right. And you have to design, your whole, the whole architecture of your program has to be desi- designed around this particular concurrency paradigm. Right. Which is a very powerful one, and, for, and for, particularly for telecommunications applications, is a very appropriate one. Um, and it has these really good uh, error recovery mechanisms, but you can shoot down a thread and uh, and sort of reboot it and its and its neighboring friends without taking down the whole system. Yeah, it, it's not a big deal to bail on a thread. 
Right, mm. right. Whereas in a system, a big shared memory system with a zillion, uh, a zillion threads that share memory yeah. and, you know, take locks in each other. And if you shoot down a thread, well, it might be holding lots of locks that are then going to block all the other threads forever. Yeah, well, we, we uh, or or it's got memory allocated to it that's never going to get released. You've got you, right. shared memory models are prone to memory leaks and are prone to contention blocking. So practically speaking, Simon, do you really think that um, functional programming is going, you know, or F sharp in particular or any functional language in .NET is really going to be the way that m real multi-threaded applications that work with large amounts of data are going to have to be written? In some shape or form, yes. So I don't, I don't want to say that everybody's going to be writing their future applications in Haskell or in F-sharp yeah. or in Erlang, but I'm pretty sure that future applications that exploit uh, more than a handful of processors yeah. are going to employ some form of uh, declarative programming or side effect free programming. So that's why I was laying a lot of emphasis on purity before. Right. Is because it's purity that means that by default things don't interfere with each other rather than by default they do. Right. Right. Now, if by default they do, which is the situation with mainstream languages today, by heroic program analyses, you can sometimes determine that they don't. And fantastic research has been done on, uh, on scalable analysis. By scalable, I mean works on million lines of code kind of thing for figuring out aliasing and when things really do work independently. Mm. But, but it's kind of, it feels like starting from the wrong end, right? Because you start from a situation right. in which by default you're dead and maybe you can resurrect yourself if you get lucky. <laughs> and, right. you know, and this superior analysis finds out, manages to figure everything out. But if it doesn't manage to figure everything out, then it's never going to be able to tell you why it didn't, if mm. you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So the, the sort of functional or declarative pure story starts from the other end. It says, no, 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 by default, everything is going to be pure. We'll let you have side effects, but we'll force you. So this is the, this is the, uh, the, the, the cost. We'll force you to be pretty explicit about it. So in Erlang, you send messages. In, in Haskell, you use monads, right? Um, which we, we may talk about a bit later. But so, so we'll give you side effects, but we'll make it completely apparent where they are happening and where everything is pure. So, um, so then, then if you have this by default, there's no interaction, then you have some chance of getting lots of processes going. Well, and, I mean, it means by default, you should be able to support lots of processors. It's only when you've explicitly violated the rules that you're going to impair that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't want to give you don't want to give the wrong impression here. Just because you write a, um, a program in a purely functional language does not make it parallel. Right. right. If I write the program one plus open brackets, two plus open brackets, three plus open brackets, and so forth, you know, up to a zillion, then the data dependencies of that program force you to compute it sequentially. Well, yes, but unless you exploit the associativity of addition, which is you know going another step. Yeah. You see what I mean? <laughs> so you can write you can write you can write a purely functional program that is nevertheless sequential. Yeah, but it's the 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 thought I had about. Uh, functional programming is that if parallelism is available, it's easily available. Like if it is in a scenario where it can be computed in parallel, you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, I know you're dancing around, you know, how parallel can things be? I think I can draw a line in the sand as a guy who's dealt with this a fair bit to say that for most programmers, two simultaneous execution threads is the limit. Right. Right. Anything much beyond that, and it just gets overwhelming. The complexity gets so huge. 
you know, lots, there are, and there's a group of folks out there that say one is as many as you can handle. Right. So I'm being optimistic as saying two. But once you get past two, you need the machine to be able to take advantage of the possibilities of parallelism by observing what's executing rather than you explicitly saying, spin off a thread, do this, spin off a thread, do this. You'll never get enough parallelism that way. Um, so it's true that like, if you have more than, more than a very small number of threads, um, each with its own program counter, your brain rapidly gets overloaded. Yes. So um, I think you need multiple concurrency paradigms in a in a program, but one that functional programming potentially offers. I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about why why I'm just saying potentially is that you can write a program which which is deterministic. It always gives the same answer. Its its semantics are don't say whether it's sequential or parallel. If I say um, you know. 2 plus 3 times 7 plus 8, I don't have to tell you whether that's a sequential program or a parallel program. It only has one answer. Right. But you could evaluate the 2 plus 3 at the same time as the 7 plus 8, if you please. Yeah. Right? But I, and I think this is where, where I'm getting to, is this idea that we have to stop as developers declaring how code should be executed. We have to simply describe what it is we want to have happen and let the machine decide how to execute it. Right, right. But I think you are, the, the reason I said potentially is because I think we are going to need to continue to find ways of giving the machine some pretty clear hints. Hmm. Yeah, the, yeah, I think the language, and this is one of the things that excited me about F sharp was this sort of inherent in the declaration are, is the purity. The way that I create these functions and, and the fact that I have clear lines of uh, separation gives hints to the uh, compiler or to the operating system of where it could parallelize if it thought it was necessary. I think you need more than what F sharp offers. So, so F sharp for a start, there's nothing to stop you doing something imperative anywhere in F sharp. Right. Right. So it's not a purely functional language by design. Uh, and that gives a lot of flexibility in some ways. Right. I think that was sort of Microsoft's intention. Right. Not to yeah. limit. Um, so it allows you to use a functional programming style, which I think has enormous advantages for uh, for modularity and, and programming. It makes you know that you, you've you've well, you had a whole show just about why functional programming is a great style. But um, because side effects can occur anywhere and are sometimes useful and are sometimes used, you can't just say, "Oh, we can evaluate this in parallel." Right. At least not without performing some analysis to say, actually, within this function, there really are no side effects. Now, in Haskell, that's considered to be such an important property that it shows up in the type. So a function with type int arrow int takes an int and produces an int, and it's pure. And, it, and that's declarative. You're saying, this is pure. You know for sure that it's got no dependencies. And it says it in its type. It wears it on its sleeve, mm -hmm. as it were. Mm -hmm. If it has type int arrow io of int, then in the type it says, I take an int, and I produce an int, but on the way I might do some input-output. Okay. And that includes side effects to mutable variables. Right. So again, the, we, the, so the OS is able to see this might have some dependencies. Right. Right. Uh, and I guess this is an interesting side effect of laziness, is that because you don't compute things till you need them, you have no way of knowing, unless you can see them at, right up front. Uh, say that again? I'm, just, I'm thinking this is the strength of Haskell. This, this laziness approach gives us the ability to, we don't know what that's going to compute. 
until we absolutely need it. So you you have to have that sort of independency. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that that's the, that's the reason that Haskell has is the purest of the functional languages um, hmm. compared to say Lisp or ML or F Sharp or Camel, um, all of which have side effects in the in the base language. And you and any function can cause a side effect at any time. Haskell has retained a kind of forced purity precisely because laziness means that if you have this, let's say, our big tree. Right. If those thunks in the tree could do I.O., could write mutable variables or um, shut down your system or switch on the lights, well, you wouldn't know when the lights would get switched on because it would depend on when the consumer of that tree poked them. Right. Right. So because the order of evaluation is somewhat hard to predict, it, may, it makes it essentially infeasible to write programs that usefully just have side effects occurring anywhere. So that forced Haskell to stay pure, and that led us to invent a way that's this monad stuff, of allowing you to mix purely functional programming with uh, mainstream imperative programming without the two uh, screwing each other up. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zune. Well, you've brought that up twice now, this Monad thing. So why don't we just go down that rabbit hole? Uh, okay, so so the, the the worst thing about monads is the name. I, I uh, I'm on <laughs> they sound far worse than they are. Yeah, no, that, that that's right. The, the name is very off-putting because it it's, uh, it's uh, comes from some something mathematical. Uh, I'm on record as saying we should have called them warm fuzzy things because <laughs> <laughs> they're good. They're really good. They are really good. So so and I, and I think we're going to see some flavor of. Um, of monads, they won't be called monads in in more mainstream languages because, in effect, it's a it's a it's a way of saying, uh, of explaining when functions have side effects. Right. So, so let me put it like this. Uh, let's see. Take a take a while loop in um, uh, in C. In the curly braces of the while loop, there's some imperative stuff. Do this and then do that. Yes. Right. And then the while loop is a language construct, again, known to the compiler, which repeatedly does that stuff. Okay? Yep. But that stuff is not a, a value that you can uh, pass around. You can't store that stuff in a data structure. And you can't say uh, x equals open curly braces, burble, burble, and then later say while x. Or, yeah, or rather, no, you, while you condition do, do x. Yes. Meaning do the stuff, right? But imagine a situation in which this, these curly braces, this, this uh, little sequence of commands was a value that you could store in a data structure or pass to a function without running the stuff, right? Okay, and I'm trying to imagine a scenario like that. Right, but... so just imagine it as being a, a kind of, it's, it's like a shell script, 
if you like. Right. Right. You haven't executed it yet, but you can pass it as a value to somebody. Okay. Yeah. Right. Imagine you're just passing the string, and later you can say, run this script. I get it. Okay. So, and what type would that script or command have? Well, in Haskell, it has, some, it has a type, something like IO int, meaning do some input output, that is some imperative stuff. Yeah. And finally, return a value. So these little scripts get to return a final value. It almost sounds like a code pointer to another function. It's a bit like a code pointer, yeah. Um, but uh, um, so you can think about it as about the stuff in curly braces. So imagine that you have a functional language in which you can put stuff in curly braces, and that's then a, a, one of these um, script-like values. So then you can compose these scripts end to end. So if you've got two of them, and you get you get say you get to pass two of these things as values, then you might want to glue them together end to end to make a new one, which is do the first followed by do the second. Right. Right. And order matters. And order matters. Mm. Right. So mm -hmm. this is a sequential composition operator. Yeah. And then finally, at the end of your program, you want to say the uh, um, the whole program is a script which. Which you, uh, which you run to perform all the effects of the program. But in the end, the program wants to do something useful, like affect the file system. So main has type IO unit. Right? That is, it's one of these little script things or commands, which okay. it, when to run the program is to run the script. Hmm. Um, okay. so, so in effect, the, uh, the type system separates imperative stuff with type IO of thing from purely functional stuff with types like int or int. And so the type system keeps, I think of it as like a membrane that separates the, uh, the purely functional computation from, that can be done in parallel or, or uh, the compiler can shake about and transform using very freewheeling rules because it has very strong assumptions, but it knows that it's pure, from the imperative stuff that must be done in sequence unless you do some pretty heavyweight analysis involving, you know, aliasing to say, I'm not storing to the same location. D does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. To me, monads almost has a very, is a variation on this concept of uh, like a mutex, where I need to protect this chunk of code so that it's only executed once. Now you're saying it's not so much that I only have to execute once, but I must execute it in sequence. Well, yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's like a mutex because this makes perfect sense. All this, this uh, imperative stuff that I've been, we've been discussing makes perfect sense in a purely sequential program. Right. Right. Where, what, where the important thing is sequencing. You're saying open this file and the, giving, getting a file handle in return. Write to the file and now write this other string to the file. It's very important the strings appear in the file in the order that you wrote them. Yes. Right. So the sequencing is very, very important because it's um, – uh, because that's what the program is supposed to do. Right. This has nothing to do with parallelism or protecting from other threads. Right. Um, I seem to have a parallel fixation today. For some reason, everything I'm thinking about is executing simultaneously. Well, and speaking of that, I was reading your um, beautiful... Help me out here. Beautiful, beautiful concurrency. concurrency. Yeah. yeah. Your beautiful concurrency article, um, which is great, by the way. And I, I got to the point where you talked about STM, Software Transactional Memory. Right. And um, how you used it with Haskell. Right. So can you tell us, uh, I mean, we've talked a little bit about software transactional memory, and I think it's fascinating. And, and every time I talk to somebody uh, such as yourself who's um, been working with it, I want to know what the current state of it is and what the promise is and if there are any new developments. I mean, because it seems a very promising way to, uh, 
to to use sort of even the languages that we use now without um, without having to make so many changes uh, in the way that we code. Right. So, so I think that's true. I think, in, in fact, transactional memory is a very nice illustration of the interplay between um, or the interplay that can take place between the developments in mainstream languages, which are becoming more functional, and the developments in functional languages, which are, which are um, uh, becoming more mainstream. Uh, becoming more mainstream and and growing imperative features in a in a carefully controlled way, as we've just been discussing, right? So, and transactional memory started completely in the imperative area. It was in it was um, uh, invented in the context of imperative programs, but then when uh, when Tim Harris and I, uh, I think I went to a talk that Tim Harris gave about doing this in Java, and I thought this transactional stuff it's made for Haskell. Because really? in Haskell, all these side effects. So in transactional memory, the idea is that you you want to say begin an atomic transaction, then you do a series of reads and writes to memory locations, which the transactional memory system must track, because it's at the end of the transaction, it's got to commit them as an atomic operation to, as it were, globally visible memory, so that other threads can see these effects. Right. The other right. threads are not meant to see the effects as they take place. They're meant to see them take place all at once. You probably remember that from your early shows about transactional memory. Yeah. Right? Yes. And, and by the same token, and if they fail, no memory is changed. Absolutely. It, it all yeah. goes back to the state it was before it started. Right, right. So what that means is that behind the scenes, every what was previously a load instruction or a store instruction has to turn into something more complicated that, that makes records in a log so that the log can be, uh, as it were, replayed against global memory in an, in an atomic way later. Right. Hmm. So that makes uh, loads and stores the things that are almost invisible in a conventional mainstream language. When you say x equals x plus 1 in C, you mean load x, add 1, and store x, right? But an x on the right means load, and x on the left means store. All these loads and stores are almost invisible. Well, in Haskell, because they are side effects, right, they're like these I.O. operations, they mutate shared state. Uh, because they're side effecting, they're very explicit, Right, and you are encouraged thereby. Right, the, the cost of it being explicit is that it's much more convenient to write purely functional programs than it is to write imperative ones. You can write imperative ones, and sometimes it's very useful to be able to do so. But you're encouraged to write in a purely functional style. So, if you write a um, uh, a program in Haskell, you tend to find you're doing zillions and zillions of purely functional operations, which are completely parallel and don't need to be tracked by this transactional memory system, and a handful of uh, truly global side-effecting mutating operations which do need to be tracked. Right? So the reason I said it was made for Haskell is because uh, if you like, we've already paid the price of, of saying mutating shared state is an operation that's expensive, complicated, and, and we should encourage other ways to write programs. But, but when, when you're going to do it, we'll still let you do it, but we'll make it pretty explicit. Right? So then, then we uh, so we took this took the transactional memory idea from that Tim was doing in Java, and, and we produced it in Haskell. And because we were in a more pure setting, we invented a couple of very important, well, I humbly believe, very important additions to transactional memory as it then was, namely retry and or else. So retry is a way of blocking in transactional memory. Have you talked about this in earlier shows? No, and I haven't talked specifically about the implementation of it. No. Oh, this is this is not the implementation. This is the programmer interface. Right. So the, the, yeah, the language items I mean. we're going to need to make this happen. That's what I mean. So here's a uh, so here's an example. You're you're um, uh, a a thread is writing into a buffer, 
right, that's going to be read by another thread. So it's writing, let's say, messages into a buffer or just bytes into a buffer, and some other thread is reading from the buffer, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is a, it's a shared memory buffer. So what do you usually do? Well, you, you store into the buffer, and, and you, you can store using transactional memory. So you, uh, you store into the buffer, and you increase the buffer pointer, and that's the end of the transaction. What does the guy reading out of the buffer do? Well, he uh, reads a byte from the buffer and decrements the pointer. But what if the, what if the buffer was empty? What does the guy reading do? Well, he wants to block, right? Right. And that's in a locks and condition variables story. That's when you'd use a condition variable. In a transactional memory story, what do you do? You have to block. So, yeah, and how do you say block in transactional memory? That's the trick, right? So one possibility is to say, uh, do this transaction under the following condition. And you write a Boolean condition. And when that condition is true, the transaction can run. Right. Right. But the trouble is that is it's terribly non-modular. Suppose I want to get two bytes out of the buffer. Well, then I have to, I can't say atomically read byte followed by read byte. No, no, no. I have to say, oh, oh, I'm going to call read byte twice. So I must predict under what conditions read byte will uh, not block. This right? sounds like the standard kind of mind games you play with yourself when you're trying to figure out how to lock effectively. Right. Right, you have to sort of predict everything you need. Right. Right, yeah. and, and lock them all in advance, perhaps. And drive yourself crazy in the process. It's completely crazy. And, and the worst of all, it's non-modular. I mean, so right. it, it, and it, sometimes it's just impossible. Right. Supposing you read from one channel, uh, and somehow, based on what you find, you must read from another channel, mm. uh, but you must do those two reads atomically. Mm. Well, you don't know whether the which channel you're going to read from in the, in the second read until you've read from the first. Right, right. So you can't predict, you know, you can't make sure. You that can't predict your locking in advance. Right. And it's entirely possible that they, that they would block each other. You, you could be deadlocking yourself. Oh, well, not with, a, not with transactions, right? Because, yeah. Um, it, but with locks, you certainly could, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So now here's how you could, uh, here's how retry helps you out with this. So it's, so it's bad. It's non-modular. To, um, to have to say at the beginning of a transaction to write down a Boolean condition which is going to, uh, you know, which must be true for the thing to hold because you may not know where that condition should be. So, so if you add one new construct called retry, you can get out of this hole. So here's what you do. You say, uh, inside a transaction, you can call retry. And what retry means is abandon the present transaction and right. run it again. So release the locks and then try and reapply them. Remember that the locks are entirely under the hood, right? Just yeah. think of the transaction. So from the programmer's point of view, the story is run this transaction. And so the, trans the read transaction goes something like, you know, look at the, uh, the buffer pointer. If the buffer is empty, retry. Otherwise, decrement the buffer pointer, remove the byte, end transaction. Okay? Okay. So hmm. the programmer at this point hasn't said when to rerun the transaction. He's just said, just run it again sometime. And it'd be perfectly correct for the system to retry and run it again right away. But the chances are the buffer would still be empty, right? Yeah. Uh, so the best thing to do is for the system to wait until something has changed. Right. But then there's a chance that uh, uh, you might run and succeed this time. <laughs> well, wait until what has changed. Right. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. So... Uh, <laughs> So interestingly, the transactional memory system has already recorded a list of all the memory locations you have read from the beginning of transaction until this retry point, right? Right. 
it had to do that anyway to support the transactional stuff. Yes. So in the transactional log is a list of locations, in this case just one, the buffer pointer, which you read. And if those locations have not changed, there's no point in rerunning. So you sure. know what to go look sure. at. It's based on the log that you just created. There you go. So a, a good implementation of this transactional memory interface I described will block the thread until at least one of the read set has changed. The read set being the locations that you read on the way to this retry. And that's right. really something that the developer doesn't have to worry about anymore. That's right. That's right. So there's no lost wake-ups anymore, right? right? When you, you know, you forget to signal a condition variable. Right. Um, or... Uh, you signal a condition variable and you forget to retest the condition. The signal condition right. variable thread wakes up, but it doesn't wake up for a long time. You know, you've got to remember to retest that condition. And the, then you the, got to, and then, you know, waking up is expensive too. You know, you're all constantly waking up and going to sleep and waking up. Well, that can, that can happen in transactional memory too as well, because you might, somebody might put something in the buffer so the thread gets reawakened, but maybe some other thread got in first and removed something from the buffer Right, again. right, right. So he doesn't guarantee that he can rerun. No, but but at least you're not running with nothing changed, right? Or or you're reacting to anything changing. You've now got a very discrete list of stuff you probably care about. Yep, right. That's great. And think about how modular this is, right? So so inside, I can now supposing my read buffer procedure was complicated. It was hundreds of lines of code that did some complicated stuff and and you know took um, took decisions. And somewhere inside, it read you know one byte or two bytes or ten bytes. Who knows what? It read some stuff from this buffer, um, and deep inside, it called retry. So let's call that whole procedure, uh, I don't know, get message from buffer. Right. Right. So now I can say, I can not only say atomically get message from buffer, I can say atomically, open bracket, get message from buffer one, followed by get message from buffer two, followed by put message in buffer three, close curly brace, and any of those three procedure calls might call retry internally. And as a programmer, I don't have to care which one of them do, which ones of them do. No. Either none of them will, in which case the transaction will complete, or one of them will, in which case it'll back up and try again when one of the memory locations read on the way to that retry has changed. What's really compelling to me about this log is that this is the sum of the actual change that your code created. Right. I'm going to get away from the complexity of your code. I don't care. I'm looking at the footprint of change That's it. Yep. that your code is executed. Yeah, so transactional memory at runtime accumulates a dynamic footprint of what the code looked at. Um, and if two transactions have different footprints, even though their code you know, might, in principle, affect the same location, so a right. static analysis couldn't detect this, you know, because at runtime, it's figuring out the footprint. If the footprints don't overlap, the transactions won't interfere with each other. Yeah, the, yeah and I'm, suddenly I think the, the, the opposite is going to be true as well, that suddenly I have the ability to see two totally different chunks of code that happen to have the same footprint. Right, and if they interact, then indeed they, uh, must be, you know, they'll be carefully serialized by the transactional memory. Right. Hmm. Well, I just think we, the concept of transactional memory, I mean, it, on the surface, we purely look at its potential from the point of view of uh, guaranteeing integrity of behavior. But the analytic side of the ability of the compiler of, of the operating system to understand what a program is actually doing, where interactions actually occur is huge. Right. 
It's a, an incredible tool to be able to better anticipate how to execute this effectively. And I can see why Haskell would jump all over this. Laziness lends itself to this hugely. So I'm not sure. So it's not, again, it's not in this case so much laziness, because actually with transactional memory, it's a kind of imperative thing you're doing. You're mutating shared state. Right. But you do need to be, the, uh, you do need to be careful about what side effects you cause. So you're, you're asking about, you know, where transactional memory is and where it's going. So in, in our Haskell implementation of transactional memory, it is all the imperative effects of reading and writing transactional variables are indeed in a monad, but it's not in the I.O. monad. It's in the transactional memory monad. And that's very important because inside a transaction, we don't want to let you do input-output. Right? Supposing you say, atomically, get message from buffer, print message on screen, uh, you know, get message from other buffer, right? Now, what right. happens if the get message from other buffer retries? Well, then, the whole transaction should, have, should be aborted with no effect. But what about that print message on the screen? Yeah, when is that going to happen? Well, hmm. it had better not happen, hadn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so you could so, say, yeah, well, it, we'll let it, you do it, but we'll save it up to the end. But what happens if it was a get message from keyboard? Hmm. Um, so, so inside a transaction... The simple and straightforward story is don't do input-output. Restrict right. yourself to reads and writes on transactional variables alone. Hmm. So notice this is like a kind of purity, right? It says you don't have to be completely pure, right? We're going to let you mutate certain kinds of state, but we want you to be only able to mutate transactional state and not do any other sort of input-output, okay? Right. So it's kind of halfway house to purity. And the, uh, what we learned about in, in Haskell is not only how to separate um, uh, purely functional stuff from imperative stuff, but also how to make a kind of taxonomy of imperative stuff of varying degrees of purity, if you like. So we can say for sure this function, which has type int to stm of int, because it has type an stm int, we know that it does no input output. Right, and therefore it's safe to do in a transaction. Simon, can I uh, can I shift gears quickly and ask yeah, about sure. something totally irrelevant? Good. C minus minus. Yes. What is that, sir? Oh. <laughs> Complete shift of gear. <laughs> uh, so GHC, my compiler for Haskell, uh, in the end has to generate machine code. And what's a convenient way to do that? Well, you don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? But particularly as there's lots of different machine architectures. So it'd be nice to use somebody else's code generator. Mm -hmm. Right. So one possibility is to uh, build some kind of retargetable code generation infrastructure. Um, but you'd think, oh, surely we can reuse some retargetable code generation infrastructure. After all, there's 20 years of uh, compiler conference papers to draw on. There, there was a time when the whole point of C was to be a, a hardware architecture independent language. Well, so, that, so that's right. So, so um, we, uh, for our, our first version of the compiler indeed still does, generated C for this precisely to separate us from the, um, uh, from the machine, right? So we generated C as a compiler target language. Now, C is a very wonderful and marvelous language, and GCC is a marvelous compiler, but it was not designed as a compiler target language. Right. And there are various ways in which it's not suitable for doing that. So one of the, the, the first things you trip over is that C doesn't have proper tail calls. So a uh, tail call is when, at the end of the procedure, you want, instead of returning 
or calling another procedure, you want to jump to another procedure. You say, so f of x and y is do some stuff and then uh, continue with g of p and q. Right. Meaning, I'm not going to return to f. I don't want to grow the stack. I don't want to call g and then return from g and then return from f. I want to, as it were, become g. Does that make sense? Yeah. If the call to g is the very last thing that f does, then there's no point in retaining f stack frame. Yeah, you just want to pass it on to g. Right, right. And then you want, you're running in the context of g. Uh, yeah, and then you, g might want to pass it on to h and so forth. And that, it turns out this is absolutely crucial for using c as a target language for, for a functional language, certainly. Um, and very, there's very special cases which c will spot the tail calls and turn them into loops and not grow stack. But, um, but it doesn't really do it in general. Even more serious. So you could, I think various, various patches to GCC have made it more and more capable of doing this. But I don't think it's still capable of doing it in full generality for which we need it. And then there's garbage collection. Right? So if you call a C procedure, it stores local variables on the stack. Yeah. And your garbage collector needs to find those local variables, but they point into the heap. Well, where are they? Well, they're somewhere on the stack. And who knows hmm. where they are? <laughs> right. So, and you don't want to mistake the number 73 for a pointer to a heap object. Yeah, that yeah. would be bad. That would be bad. Yeah, yeah doing math on pointers, bad idea. <laughs> now, particularly if you've got a relocating garbage collector that moves objects around, bad enough keeping the object whose address happens to be 73 alive, right? But if you've got a copying garbage collector that moves things somewhere else and redirects the pointers, then that number 73 might turn into 85, and that would be very bad. <laughs> yeah. So it's very difficult to, um, uh, to find your way around the C stack. In fact, it's, as far as I know, it's infeasible to find your way around the C stack. So anyway, so you asked about C minus minus. So C minus yeah. minus was, a, was a, essentially a research project. We said, well, look, um, if we wanted to design a little compiler target language whose whole purpose in life was to be a language that insulates a front end for a language like Haskell or indeed any language, including C actually, from a back end whose business it is to generate code for a variety of architectures, what would that language look like? Hmm. And so we called it C++ because it's kind of like C, right? So it's almost a marketing um, thing. Sure. But it's not really a subset of C. It's certainly not a proper subset of C. But it has various things that C doesn't have. Um, and C certainly has lots of things that C++ doesn't have. Right. Yeah, so it's not just a smaller version of C++. That's right, yeah. So in some ways, we, we were, we were uh, being, playing a bit of a trick with the, with the name, really because C was a language that lots of people had used for this kind of purpose. So we're saying it's like C in that respect. Yeah. Well, and, it, and this, you, this reminds me of uh, the CLR, except that you're focusing on being able to compile efficiently into machine language where the CLR compiles to IL, irrespective of language. Right, right. So, um, so imagine a picture in your mind with, with layers, and right at the bottom layer is, let's say, the x86 machine architecture. Right. right? And about two inches above that is C++. Yeah. Right? Um, and, oh, and very close, sort of tiny bit below C++ is assembly code. Right. Well, yeah. I guess the bottom layer, that x86 is assembly code for mm -hmm. x86, right? Mm -hmm. And then about a meter above that is um, the CLR. Uh, the CLR Intermediate language, IL. Mm, yeah. Now, what's, what's in, that, in that meter? Well, the CLR has a, has a rich and complicated type system. It has a garbage collector. It has exception dispatch. It has concurrency. It manages its own heap. So uh, it has class loaders. So 
when you compile to IL, you're building on top of a huge platform. Yeah, right? huge. Massive, right? And which get, gets you uh, a tremendous um, advantage if you want that platform, right? Because you, you know, with, with a big platform, you get a lot for free. Yeah, but the downside is if you want a different platform, you have an incredible mountain to climb to get there. Right, hmm. right. So, or, or indeed, if you're trying, to, if you're really not interested in the CLR's garbage collector or exception handling mechanism or type system, if you want to compile for a completely different kind of type system, um, or we just want to build something that's like the CLR but isn't the CLR. Uh, in other words, if you just want to do the generate code bit, then the CLR isn't what you want, but it's much too high level. Yes. So our slogan for C minus minus is. It's an assembler, Jim. Right? <laughs> it's just an assembler, right? Its yeah. whole goal is to be as low level as it can possibly be without revealing the details of how many registers the machine has or right. what its instruction set is. That's you know, its goal you, in you, life. Just to sort of tie this back to our earlier conversation, I realized when you were talking about you know X equals X plus 1, and actually make that a little more declarative about fetching data and so forth. That's what we did in Assembler. I fetched a memory location into a register, uh -huh. then I ran the operation to add one to it, and then I pushed it back into the memory location. Yeah, fine. It was all terribly declarative. Hmm. Like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Well, it's certainly more explicit. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're getting back to, uh, you know, having that explicitity in a higher level language. Yes, but again, it's, uh, I still want to make it keep a, a clear distinction between loads and stores, which are these side-affecting things that you don't want to use too much. And if I say let y equal x plus 1, like I might do in a, you know, in a purely functional language, I can do that. On a spreadsheet, I can say, you know, cell A1 contains the formula equals A2 plus 1. Right. But that means that cell A1 forever contains the value that's 1 bigger than A2. Right. So, so if you like, or well, if I say let y equal x plus 1, Y is simply a name for a value. It's not a name for a box which can be mutated and change its value over time. Y is simply a local name for a single immutable value. And the whole difference between functional programming and imperative programming is that variables in imperative program, programming are the names for boxes whose values change and which you get the value with loads and, and, and set the value with stores. And in functional programming, a variable is the name for a value, not for a box. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, it makes you think about programming in a whole different way. And I think we're beginning to see quite a lot of creative interplay between um, the way you think about programs to write functional programs and, um, and making increasing use of that and rather less use of this very powerful but almost too powerful imperative programming paradigm. It's too powerful because it, places too many constraints on the compiler and the runtime system for, uh, for parallelism. And it's too powerful because it makes it harder for programmers to figure out what's going on too. Yeah. And being able to get back down to sort of the bare essentials of what we needed to do allows us more flexibility for, for uh, executing in different ways. Right. Right. Uh, I, I just suddenly occurred to me, I mean, the language Haskell is named after Haskell Curry but then there's also currying. How did this guy manage to get both names <laughs> named after you know software tasks? <laughs> Nicely well, done for a yeah. lot. For a, he was a, a a logic scientist. He was. He was a he was an early logician. A logician, yes. So he's really a sort of you know mathematical logician. Uh, and uh, but he was one of the um, 
the people who laid the foundations for what we now call functional programming. Right. Uh, so, I mean, it was his thinking around the concepts that would become functional programming. Currying is really the, the process of reducing the number of arguments, you know, going from multiple arguments to a single argument in a function call. Yes. Yeah, so it's, um, it was, so Cohen, which, which is, uh, which also, I think it was co-invented. I, I still don't know whether it was quite simultaneous or whether they did it together or what by a guy called Schoenfinkel, um, a German, uh, uh, logician. But I think right. Schoenfinkling. Yes. Too weird. Well, was it Schoenfinkelization, the opposite of currying? No, no, no. It's the same thing. Now, this is beginning to sound a little dirty. Yeah, that's fine. I'm you sorry. Know, as soon as you've got an umalt in a word, the it's, sensors got, it's have got spoken. some bad connotations. So, Cohen is the idea that a function um, of two arguments, is you, can, you can, instead of thinking of a function as taking two arguments, you can think of, think of it as taking one argument and returning a function which takes another argument right. and returns a value. So, uh, take the multiplication function. If I apply multiply to three, what I get back is a function which does what? It multiplies things by three. Right. So multiply by three, or times three is a function which I can apply, you know, I can say let f equal times three in f of seven plus f of nine, and the f of seven will return ten, and the f of nine will return, uh, oh, I said times three, didn't I? Yeah, times three. So <laughs> f of seven will return 21. Yeah. The f of nine and, will and return the f of nine uh, is 27. Uh, 27, right, then I'm, so I can apply this function as many times as I like. So hmm. that's what, you know, what currying is. All right, and Schoenfigelization was the another term for currying. It's just oh, I don't think, I think it was ever used as a term. It's just that Schoenfinkel had the same idea at the same time. Okay, but curry, man, it, you know, somehow it got it got known as currying, perhaps because it was a more convenient name. Yeah, um, no, no doubt. But then it was much, much later when we were designing Haskell that we uh, chose Haskell as his, as the name of the language. We uh, we all we all uh, twenty of us in a room, and we all approached a single blackboard. It was still a blackboard in those days. And we all wrote names for languages, names for the language, as many as we could think of. And we crossed out names that we hated. Yeah. And then we, uh, we ended up with a pretty short list after that of names mm -hmm. that well, nobody hated. And, and Haskell obviously won out. Well, that's right. And then, then Paul, then Paul Hudak went to uh, Haskell Coe's widow and said, is it okay if we, um, uh, we, if we call our language after your husband? your late husband. Right. And he had a very nice time with her, and she gave him tea and was very charming and uh, said, well, I, you know, I don't understand anything about, what, what, uh, about all this, but I'd be very happy for you to call, uh, call the language after my husband. But wow. then just as he was leaving, she said, you know, he never liked the name Haskell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and that's what I was thinking is, who names their kid Haskell that's Curry, right. for crying out loud, unless you wanted him to be named after a language. <laughs> right, yeah. Little did she know. Little did you know, but the, at, uh, or little did he know, anyway. So right. he didn't like the name, but we picked it. Uh, That's pretty funny. The only disadvantage is that it sounds too like Pascal. Um, yes. Or Pascal, which, of course, is a much older language. We're just about out of time, but I have one more question that's been eating in the back of my mind for the entire hour, which is, uh, at what point did you discover that you were Michael Palin's evil twin? <laughs> Do you mean... That uh, what, what, somebody sent me a link to this. Uh, what was that? I forget where it was. You look just like Michael Palin. <laughs> oh my God! Well, in that photo, anyway, in, the your bio photo is remarkably like Michael Palin. Yeah. Right, right. No, I, I think the first time it ever occurred to me was when this, uh, there was the, when this blog entry got sent to me. Oh, so somebody made a blog post saying you were actually Michael Palin in disguise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not sure where it was. I, I just followed the link. But if you, if you search for Simon Peyton Jones and Michael Palin, you'll find it. Yeah. So what was your favorite Python sketch to do all those years ago? <laughs> I, know, I love the cheese sketch. <laughs> I don't think Michael Palin was in that. No, the cheese shot. Well, yeah, oh, he yeah, was. No, he he found it shot. just like that. He was yeah. the guy behind. No, it was Eric Idle. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, yeah. But okay. I love it. Do you remember the cheese sketch? Who goes? I do. Yeah. Do you have any Venezuelan beaver cheese? Ah, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, Simon Peyton Jones is the Michael Palin of the functional programming world. Oh. There's your blog post. <laughs> you well, found it already. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> Well, I didn't. I didn't know about that. I just saw this picture and I went, "Oh my god!" Oh, it's interesting. So you sort of independently uh, come to the same conclusion. Yeah, there must be something to it. I don't mm. know. Well, Simon, thank you very much. This has been enlightening, and thanks, Richard, for uh, um, for for carrying this show. As you do most of the time, we talk about functional programming. It's a pleasure. I think it's a pretty exciting time for functional programming. Actually. Very exciting times. I'm totally stoked. And I don't think we have the. Uh, I don't think we have the answer to this parallelism stuff. You know, just just writing a functional program is not going to make your program run in parallel. Yeah, I completely agree. But you know what this feels like? This feels like the late '80s with the small talks and the prologues and the Eiffels, and we had all these object-oriented languages, and we were out there feeling around trying to find the answer to what was going to work for mm -hmm. us. And it feels just like that with all of these different functional constructs out there right. and trying different ways of how the how are we going to make this work. Right. Yeah. So, and somehow or other, I'm pretty sure that declarative or, or somewhat side effect free mechanisms are going to play a big role in whatever, what you know, however this parallel stuff plays out. Certainly seems I that way. Totally agree. Yeah. Thank you, Simon. Thank you again. Great. Really nice to talk to you. All right. And thanks for listening out there. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a